Hey everyone, welcome to this episode of the Chem Converse podcast. Today we're introduced by Nessa Carson. Yeah, hi, I'm Nessa. I work in organic chemistry and chemistry automation currently at Syngenta. And I guess my background's in organic chemistry and high throughput chemistry. It's awesome. So we're going to start with very serious questions, which is, have you always been a cat person? And can you talk more about your cats? Yeah. Oh, my kissies. Yeah, I, I love kissies. Ever since I was a little kid, I've been basically obsessed with cats because they're awesome and they're all perfect. And that's the main reason for that. <laughs> so yeah, I have two cats and they're called Faraday and Rufus and they're my little boys and they like chemistry too. Yeah. Is Rufos, is that named after a famous catalyst? I feel like it sounds like a catalyst kind of name. Could you elaborate on that a bit? So Rufos the catalyst is named after Rufus the cat, who is Steve Buckwald's cat. So Rufos is named after Rufos the catalyst. And if I ever made a phosphine catalyst and managed to commercialise it, which is not likely to happen, but if I did, I would probably call it Rufos Foss after Rufos. That's, that's really funny. <laughs> it's nice that you bring kind of chemistry into, you know, everyday life as well. I can't help it. Yeah, it's it's a problem, really. It's very hard to avoid, especially when it comes to naming pets. Yeah, I've had some weird pet names in the past. I had two rats called Beatty and an Illid, which I thought was quite cool. They're both charged separated <laughs> species. For anyone that isn't a chemistry person that's listening, just appreciate how, how nice the names sound, you know. And that's really interesting for myself I'm a dog person I don't know if you have any pets at home or I don't unfortunately but I'm always I'm already thinking ahead in terms of like what I'm going to name my pets if I if I ever I, I am more of a dog person but but cats are adorable too I agree dogs are also lovely yeah there's constant fight between dog people and cat people so let's not get into that no so I mean Nessa you talked about at the beginning about kind of your background and I just wonder if you can expand on kind of how you became interested in chemical automation and robotics like was it from an early age was it a recent thing well everyone likes robots don't they from an early age I mean that's just the truth I think like I'm so jealous when you see all these kids clothes that have robots and dinosaurs on them and stuff like that and I'm just like why can't adults wear that just every day I guess maybe we can technically but it's, it's not normally the done thing unfortunately but yeah I never thought I'd actually go into that field so when I started in industry, I was a bench chemistry for about two years or a year and a bit, year and a half, maybe. And then I, w- I was going to all kinds of different conferences because I really enjoy all kinds of chemistry conferences. I was going to like AI conferences and things like that. And my background is not in machine learning statistics so much. It's just something that I kind of am interested in and occasionally use now in my work. At the time, I didn't at all, though. And yeah, I guess like just things moved around at work a bit. And I think because they, and particularly because my super awesome mentor that I was very lucky to work with back then, because he knew I was going to these conferences, then he asked me whether I'd I'd run that lab when he had to move out of there to go on to non-lab things and wouldn't have time to run it anymore. And obviously I was like, yes, I mean, yeah, of course I will. And it was amazing. And it turns out it really, really suits me. And it suits me a lot, even better than bench chemistry. I like synthesizing stuff, but yeah, I don't know, purification. I was quite happy not to have to do that anymore. I never purify anything nowadays. And if I do, I hand it off to someone else to purify. That suits me just fine. 
I mean, that's the bane of, I think, if you speak to any organic chemist, that's the bane of their life is, you know, you can do a synthesis, but then you have to purify the end product and, you know, doing columns or whatever it might be. It's often quite time consuming and yeah, it can be difficult sometimes, I can imagine. Yeah, I haven't done a column myself for years and I haven't done a manual column, of mm -hmm. course, since grad school, which was a long time ago. It feels like a long time ago anyway. Yeah, was there a specific point of time in your grad school or like in throughout your life when you were like, okay, no more bench chemistry for me? Or was it kind of a, a slow process of realization that that's not what you want? Not at all. I mean, I'm still happy to do the occasional like synthesis, to be honest. I think it's quite nice as well. I think it's important to keep those skills going. It's just that generally I'm not doing things on huge scale anymore even when I do do standard bench chemistry then you know I'm using the one rotavaf in my entire lab and yeah I'm probably doing things on reasonably small scale like up to up to a gram maybe works for me but normally my my everyday scale is like five milligrams so very very tiny I, I do enjoy it, but as an everyday thing, that's not for me. I, I like to be super efficient, and I guess that comes at the expense of not making final compounds and the important parts like that. But, you know, that's for someone else to do. That's for many other great chemists to be doing. So I guess we're kind of switching slowly to uh, normal life or I guess coming back to normal life. So that topic of pandemic, I think it, it always will leave some kind of impact on our lives and we were wondering whether you could talk about any skills that you developed that you lacked previously but that you're currently using in your work or that helped you in in any places or things that you do yeah over the pandemic I guess things haven't been that different for me in work because I've been in work every day as a key worker so I suppose the main difference has just been that we can't really talk to other people which is actually really challenging for someone previously in high throughput chemistry, which is a very social job in most companies. So typically, you know, I'm working on all projects, I'm going between different groups, and I've got to liaise with people from essentially all kinds of different departments and that sort of thing. And that's actually been really difficult in the pandemic. And I'm not sure whether I even built any skills as a result of that challenge at all. Having said that, then getting through that has been interesting and slow but yeah right now I'm running an experiment that I realize I've got to use equipment from five different departments including my own so clearly then I have eventually got to talk to all these different departments but yeah it, it's slowed things down like for me the social part of work is a really important thing and it's important to keep everyone together and that's that's yeah it's been a challenge yeah i think yeah social culture is kind of predicated on yeah interaction between people and not having that over the course of what what has it been like 18 months at this point like it's been difficult you know whether it be in the lab or outside just going to the pub you know things are opening up a bit more especially in the uk and uh yeah i think people are just looking forward to you know being back and socializing as normal as possible i guess you know well that's the thing i started this job during lockdown and people occasionally are saying things like oh remember when we all used to hang out and do all this stuff and i'm like i don't remember like i i haven't 
hung out with all of you guys at the same time ever. It's, it's just not happened. <laughs> I mean, there are people who are my colleagues who I still haven't met who don't even work that far away from me. And that's, yeah, that, that sucks actually. <laughs> I actually have a question for both of you. Do you think that after pandemic, would people be more willing to talk or would they be kind of scared and be like, oh, I'm used to not talking to people. I'm actually not gonna, I'm just gonna be an introvert now and just be in my bubble. I mean, I think personally it depends, you know, if it's a case of chatting to them in person, I think it certainly depends on your own personality because I think if you're already introverted in any kind of way, then you're unlikely to suddenly switch gears and become extroverted just because. But at the same time, I think, yeah, if you've been used to being quite outgoing and then you suddenly, you know, are locked down, then you, you might kind of become a bit more insular. I don't know, Nessa, if you kind of agree on that to, to an extent. Or... Yeah, I think it depends. So I think probably, actually, I reckon most people, this is just my guess, most people will be more anxious about those sorts of things. I keep seeing these articles about COVID anxiety and that sort of thing about things opening up again. I can't wait. I'm like desperate for all this. And I guess the fact is that I really need these things in my everyday life. It's why I go to so many conferences just to see people and hang out and obviously for the talks as well. But like the main point is to see my friends and to hang out and to talk about what's going on in their lives, in their jobs, in their research and chemistry. And that's where the, the really, I think, effective parts of conferences actually tend to happen. So yeah, the online conferences have been cool, but they do usually, not always, lack that kind of networking element. I don't think there is any substitute for, like you say, kind of that almost water cooler chat and just, you know, chatting about things besides research that isn't as fluid, maybe, on, on online than it is kind of in person. I'd say it's a lot more natural when you're in person. Yeah, I agree. And there's things you just don't talk about online because I guess you just don't. Like I was thinking the other day, remember when I used to go to conferences all the time and I'd hear all the gossip from the vendors from, <laughs> from all these companies that are trying to sell you catalysts and kits and that sort of thing. I'd hear what was going on with them. And that was really cool. I quite enjoyed that part of the conference because you find out all kinds of stuff from the vendors. They know everything. And I can't just email a vendor and be like, hey, what's going on in the gossip world? And I guess as well, the online thing, you know, like you say, people are anxious now that things are recorded and all, all our devices are, you know, hearing this all the time. So, you know, it's like if you say something, does it get picked up by someone? Yeah. And also the fact that it's all like whenever there's a social hour, you have like a thousand people on Zoom call with you. It's not like you can one on one talk with one person and just gossip around, you know, it's, it's very... Uh, you know, public, so you don't have that privacy. Another question we had in terms of your experience from going from academia into industry, could you maybe comment on kind of three things you have found different in terms of workplace culture between those two kind of settings? Oh, everything is different, like every single thing. I mean, in academia, I was in one of those places where it's a sort of long hours culture. I don't mind long hours at all, actually, but it's one of those places that that's a very strong part of it but I suppose it's very competitive. And also, it's like I was saying before, how I tend to work and I like working between large groups of people and just having all those interactions, it's really important to me and being able to talk to the experts. If I want something done that requires a particular specialism, 
then I feel like I should know the basics of that, but it's really helpful to be able to talk to an actual expert in it and to have their advice. Whereas I think in a lot of academia, and this is a generalization, so it's not definitely not true of everyone, but in general, there's less collaboration. And even within the group, like groups, I guess, in organic chemistry tend to be very competitive with each other, like sometimes to the point where it's quite damaging. I hope that's a thing that you wouldn't tend to see in industry, particularly in a big established company. I don't think you'd ever see something like that in the kind of places that I like to be working. You know, we're all sort of working together for a common goal and we might have different ideas about how to reach that goal and how to get there. That's a challenge, but we're all working towards it. We're not trying to destroy other people on the way there. So there's a big difference. I just remember when I first started, I'd been in the company for two weeks. We had our first team meeting. I always talk about this as like the, the kind of tipping point for me when I realized that it was so different because people had been nice up till then, but I was like, okay, it's a team meeting. So we're going to get told that we're, you know, useless. We're not doing well. We need to do more. We need to do this and that. And yeah, my team leader sat down with us and he was just like, well, you know what, everyone, you guys have hit all the targets that, that you need to. You've done everything right. Please just keep going. This is amazing. This is great work. Uh, I just want you to do more of the same. That's it. And I was like, what has happened here? This is amazing. So yeah, it's, it's different. It's not like I need to be complimented all the time or whatever, but it's nice to know when you're doing things right and to have the support of people around you in actually reaching your goals. Would you say that satisfaction you get from those higher up in terms of, you know, praise as well, does that kind of motivate you a bit more, do you think, in terms of working in industry versus what you perhaps experience in kind of an academic setting? Yeah, I think it actually does. I think feedback is really important. If you have negative feedback, I think it's really good to be able to deliver that effectively. Because if you just tell someone they're rubbish, that doesn't tend to make them better. I mean, there are books and books and papers and papers on this. And if you're actually results orientated, then you should realize that's not a thing you should be doing. And that's reasonably general across all people. I mean, it, it varies, definitely. But if you want to get the most out of your teams, you want them working together and you want them working effectively. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, I think, you know, negative feedback has its place, but certainly I think positive feedback, positive reinforcement, that's all really good for any any workplace, really. Also, if you don't get that, you kind of have no idea what's going on and what you are doing well. And then that just adds to more challenges, like when you're writing CVs or, or anything like that, or when you're figuring out even what to do with your career, because, you know, I'm still constantly changing what I'm doing all the time to to some smaller extent and it's important for me to know what I'm good at and where my skills are. Yeah I just wanted to like comment quickly on what you said about like industry versus academia in terms of like the way how they approach the team meetings and everything. Would you agree with me that it would also depend mainly on just like what company it is and what I, I guess supervisor specifically instead of just focusing on industry versus academia or um, is it is it kind of in general in terms of okay this is what you expect because I heard so many scary stories about supervisors being like oh like you're not doing enough you're not well blah 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 but then I would expect that every every meeting with my supervisor but then it never happened and like it's always like oh you're doing fine you're doing great just keep doing so I think it it, it also depends on the supervisor or 
that is definitely good to hear. And also, I think my default is to think about sort of things that happen to me in academia. Right. Okay. You know, I, I have plenty of friends who are academics and a lot of them are just fantastic people. And when I see them with their students, it still blows my mind even now because I'm just like, I can't believe you guys are just chatting, just like really casually just hanging out and that sort of thing. Just like hanging out on the weekends, you know, it's what are you doing? This is amazing. <laughs> so yeah, I think there's just some brilliant stuff out there. There are definitely some great and supportive groups to be in. It's always going to be different because I guess in academia, your supervisor tends to be very important and that's variable too. There are people who never see their supervisors. I have friends who have been in that situation, but the supervisor is still the boss, the important one, the one who goes on all the papers and who tends to have quite a high intellectual contribution to things. Whereas for me now then, I quite like the flatter structure, like the lack of hierarchy is quite useful to me because then I can go to the person who is most important for me to talk to. I just find that more efficient. Definitely. You know, that's really interesting to hear the difference between that academic and kind of industrial settings. And in that case, could you comment on like how your experience differed between in the US academic system versus the UK? Obviously, we're aware from what you said previously that you did a master's in the US and, and, and then moved to the UK. How did that differ? Did you find? Yeah, I almost don't know as much about the UK academic structure. Obviously, I have loads of friends who are in it right now, both as supervisors or students or postdocs or somewhere in between. But yeah, it's it's kind of, it is very different. So I think in the US, then it's even more towards the side I was just talking about where the supervisor has all the power and nobody else has any of it, which is fine if the supervisor decides to be nice about it, you know, but I think it probably doesn't incentivize things very effectively I don't know a lot of people in the UK are advised to go over to the US for a postdoc or something like that it's not specifically the US but that's you know one of the countries where a lot of really fantastic organic chemistry is being done so yeah I suppose one of the big differences is that in the states labs tend to have quite a lot of money so when they start up I suppose I'm thinking of big institutions rather than smaller ones because I, I don't have the experience of a smaller institution. But the big ones, when an assistant professor starts their job, they're basically given a starting grant by the university and they can set up their lab and they can get quite fancy equipment. Probably not as fancy as a big company would get, but still very fancy, like a nice glove box glove boxes if you're an inorganic person all kinds of kits and enough to hire a couple of students potentially start off with a postdoc and then move on from there so it's quite a nice start and you'll probably get more money as time goes on and enough to be able to do this fantastic cutting edge science a little more easily in the early days whereas I hear from my UK academic friends that they don't feel it comes that easily to them and they certainly don't get given all this by the university in one go for starting their jobs so yeah there there is that and then there's the whole tenure thing so after five years in the states it's like well do I get to keep my job or not well I've gone above and beyond for five years and I still don't know so that's a really huge time, I guess, in their career. And that's that's basically make or break of their academic career, it feels like, although there are ways out, there are 
ways you can move to another institution and that mm -hmm. sort of thing. Yeah. So I think there's a lot of pressure in the States. Maybe that's it. I've always found the way of the tenure track system to be quite just interesting because we don't really have an equivalent, I guess, in the UK. And that's perhaps because there are various roles in the academic system here in the UK, kind of reader, professor, that kind of stuff. And I don't know if perhaps you saw that success was tied to kind of how much money a professor had in the US. Would you say that was kind of a generalization that you observed or? I'm not sure, actually. I feel like a downside of the UK is actually that it it does seem to be more metrics based. Maybe maybe that isn't a downside. Maybe it's actually more just more hidden in the States and it's all the same thing because I guess they're still judging you on papers and grants and outputs. But yeah, you see all this even of full professors in the UK who have been doing their jobs for decades and they're still made to report on all these metrics and they're still judged by all this sort of thing and they're still not happy about it. I don't think I could do that job. <laughs> <laughs> I had colleagues who were always saying to me, I, I think you should be an academic. And I'm just like, I, I don't think I could do that. I mean, there's just so much random stress associated with every single day of your life. And you're not even mm -hmm. trained for it at all. Like not trained for the, the teaching parts and the mentoring parts and any sort of management. You're not trained for even accountancy and that sort of thing and it's just difficult and from an outside perspective it's much more than just research when you say to someone oh I'm a chemist or oh I'm a professor in chemistry you know they assume perhaps that all you do is research but like you say there's so many facets to it and the relentless pressure I can imagine could be great for some people who thrive on pressure but for others it you know just isn't isn't for them yeah, it kind of weird because you're trained as a grad student. So you're doing all the lab work for five years, then you go for a postdoc for two years and you're still doing lab work. And then suddenly you're a professor where you have to deal with all your grad students and handle grants and completely different stuff. And you're not even in the lab. So it makes no sense. So yeah, we had that conversation uh, for quite some time with, with a couple of uh, professors in our faculty because it's just kind of weird that, you know, I feel like they, I wish there was more... Um, like mentoring experience and like other experience that you would actually use, like how to write a grant or et cetera, that would help you more. Yeah, it's so important. I mean, just in my life and career, the most important person that has affected me the most has been my amazing mentor. I was chatting to him this week, you know, and um, we haven't worked together for a few years now, but I value his contributions and all my other mentors contributions so much and you know I wouldn't have gone into high throughput chemistry as I said before without that effect it's the most important thing to me in my career and I'm sure it is to many many other people's too and you want to see that done right mm -hmm. for sure definitely One of the random questions that we had for today was about seasons. So what's your favorite season and why? Yeah, obviously summer is the best season. I don't understand <laughs> people who say anything else. It's, it's the best. I just want to be like on a beach in Spain. I mean, it'd be really nice if I had a lab around me, but, you know, it's just perfect. I, I love it when it's hot. So I, I can't complain about the heats ever. Even when I lived in Illinois and I think it got up to 41 one day Celsius. Oh. 
that was a little bit much, but I would take that over it being cold <laughs> any day of the year. <laughs> That's true. I'm more of a spring person. I don't like it when it's too cold. Uh, I was in Canada for a year during my undergrad, and in Quebec City, it was minus 40 Celsius at one point with snow about yay high. And then the summer can be just too hot and unpale, so I burn easily. So the springs are nice, kind of medium, where it's kind of, yeah, not too hot, not too cold. I think it depends on like what what is it for. So is it a favorite season to work? So for example, in the summer, I can't focus because it's so sunny and nice outside. I just want to be on the beach all day. It's so hard to be in the lab. But then when you want to work and be productive, I think rain and, and something like fall is, is perfect or winter. I mean, I hate winters. I hate snow, but it's good for work because you can't be outside. So you better just stay and work. So yeah, it depends. But I'm definitely a spring person too. And I just realized that I guess the, the New York state and then and, and Toronto and all that region of Canada, I think we don't have that much spring, which is so sad. Like we we have snow and then suddenly it's just extremely hot and then there's no spring. So I haven't seen spring for six years and that's very sad. So I can't, I can't wait to see spring again. Oh, wow. But yeah. I like spring to be fair because there's lots of baby animals around and yes. it's getting warmer. <laughs> Definitely. So, I mean, going back to the work that you've done previously and are doing now, actually. So what would you say is one innovation in chemical automation and kind of high throughput chemistry as well that you're grateful for? So you, you kind of wouldn't be able to do your job without? That's, that's a great question. I like that. I mean, you know, I'm always chatting about how amazing solid dispensing technology is. And it, it genuinely is. That probably sounds really boring if you're not into automation, but a solid dispenser is like the most amazing thing you can have to be quite honest mm -hmm. but you know i reckon in the future I, I think a lot of companies aren't using bayesian optimization and things like that so much so i definitely can't talk about the future of what we'd be doing like in companies that i would work for but it's nice to see that um academics have gotten to this and people are doing absolutely fantastic bayesian optimization in the labs for their experiments both organic and then in other fields as well and I'd love to see the field generally pick more of that up as we go along it's fantastic I mean I suppose the downside is it's probably slower to run that experiment and that's why people in general aren't doing this I tend to do full factorial experiments that's how I I like to run things it's it is actually quite efficient because it's time efficient it may not seem material efficient if you think you're running too many experiments from a design of experiments point of view but actually it is more time efficient it's easy to do and there's a little bit of redundancy and that's actually not pointless it's helpful when you're running things on tiny scale with large error bars it really helps you actually figure out those trends so yeah i'd love to see more statistics and chemistry and that sort of thing i can't wait till that comes in yeah, I mean, do you think, talking about DOE, so I did a course recently, just an online course, I think, um, on, on DOE, I think run by the RFC, and it was really good because I'd not done it previously. Would you suggest that, you know, that's something that could be integrated more into undergraduate curricula to kind of teach students about it so they actually have that skill going into later life in terms of industry? Yeah, I would love to see that. So to be fair, probably in the kind of companies I have worked at, probably not many people are doing DOE. So it would be a small number of people who are having a big effect by using it. Having said that, yeah, I mean, the undergrad curriculum, I didn't learn anything like that. 
and then I got to grad school and I actually did a little DOE in grad school although it was with quite old software and with absolutely no training and that sort of thing but yeah I, I had no idea what it was like my su- my supervisor's just like oh can you do this with DOE and I'm like what's DOE never heard of it before in my life you don't often see it in the literature because sort of why would you really it's not the kind of thing that tends to get published but yeah just some understanding of statistics yeah I definitely think that needs to be taught and I think when I saw the word DOE initially I thought is that not an animal I was like a doe like (laughs) I was really confused and I looked it up and I was like oh design of experiment that makes that makes more sense so yeah it's it's so useful for things like manufacturing even not in chemistry people use this all the time in many many industries and it's amazing and I wish more people knew about it really actually you know what the one thing I wish we did teach better mm-hmm. I guess at undergrad so that people do know about it but how to screen like this one variable at a time or one factor at a time that is not how to optimize an experiment sometimes it might work and it might give you a good answer but it's generally not the way to do things you want to be able to explore multiple factors at a time because in chemistry where everything is incredibly complex and any change seems to invoke all sorts of unexpected effects then Mm -hmm. that is not the way to get to the answer you want (laughs) not efficiently and probably not the best answer at all so I wish that would come into the undergrad curriculum you know we see it in every academic paper it's it's not right No, I agree. And I think it's highly, yeah, like you say, inefficient. And even those factors that you think you can control, you probably can't. So things like humidity in the lab, you know, that's an uncontrollable variable that, you know, will will vary from hour to hour, probably. So, you know, even if you try and keep one factor constant, or, or, or to change one factor, then inevitably, there's other factors at play that are going to kind of vary as well. So yeah, I think I'm with you on board uh, in terms of that, but I guess it's hard to not screen one factor at a time because it's easier to track what 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 is causing the change because if you're just changing a couple of things, then you don't really know. Is it the temperature? Is it the, the additive? Is it whatever? So, but, but yeah. Yeah, it's easier. It makes sense. And quite often as well, I'll do a full factorial screen and then because I don't have so much material or I don't have so much time, I might do a bit of a one factor at a time. Uh, just to finish it off and optimise a little better. So just to finish up with the philosophical question, so we know the automation is is growing in popularity, so um, what what is one aspect of chemistry that's not yet automated, but you feel like it could improve from being automated? I like that question. That's, That's cool. I think there's I think there's a lot like there's just little bits I think most chemists because most chemists don't code at the moment which makes absolutely perfect sense why would they it it takes time to learn for sure and a lot of people don't see the value but I think just workflows generally are something that could be way 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 more automated and faster And then we don't get people doing what genuinely is drudge work, filling in forms and that sort of thing. I can't stand these things. So I write all my workflows in like Python code wherever I possibly can. So I'm not an experienced coder. I'm still pretty much a beginner. I guess I've been doing it about three years now. 
And basically everything I do, I put into Python and it's so much faster. If we had that generally for everyone, then everyone would be faster. I think part mm -hmm. of it is that because I work in or I've worked in high throughput and there you really notice it when your workflow is slow or it's inefficient because, you know, I was doing 150 samples on an average day. That's quite a lot. So if my workflow is inefficient and I'm doing it 150 times a day, that's quite a big driver to change. Whereas if a bench chemist is doing it once or twice a day, that's not so much of a driver to change. And they would value the benefits, but they perhaps don't think so much about the benefits because it's not quite as pressing mm -hmm. to them. But yeah, there's all kinds where your average bench chemist could be faster, better off and much happier. <laughs> if more parts right. of their day were automated. Do you anticipate a future perhaps then where, especially for high throughput chemistry that can be quite labour intensive, where robotics could replace humans essentially in the lab? I hope so. I, I think we're, we're there <laughs> um, almost. I think in some places they, they like to say they're there. I'm not sure they're 100% there, but yeah, honestly, then I think that would be quite nice. I don't want to get rid of chemists by any means. I really definitely don't want to do that. I enjoy lab work as well, but I like it when I have robots that help me do it because I don't like weighing things out myself, five milligrams at a time into 96 vials and then weighing out my catalysts at 0.8 megs or 0.5 meg scale. That is error prone, irreproducible. You don't know what's happened. A robot will tell you exactly what happened. So yeah, I, I, in my personal career, want to see more robots all the time yeah. doing all those bits that, that aren't so fun and are irreproducible, for sure. Yeah, a lot of chemists are scared of robots. They're like, no, they're going to replace chemists. But I cannot wait, honestly, for the time when I just can tell the robot, do all this stuff. These are the ideas. Because you just want to value your time and just use that time of all this labor and, and all this routine work just to think about your ideas and chemistry and, and just come up with some projects and stuff. So yeah, it's, it's, it's very valuable. And, and thank you for, for working on, you know, making the future come fast. I cannot wait for that, but it's probably when I'm already done with grad school, but hopefully for future generation, it's going to be helpful. Yeah. It's a robot companies you should thank. They're doing, they're doing great work. Hopefully they listen to us sometimes. I think they do. So yes. they're doing it all right. I think it's an exciting future, not just in chemistry, but across, you know, various sectors in terms of robotics. So, mm -hmm. you know, fingers crossed for a robotic future, I guess, you know. Yeah, <laughs> I agree. Just want to say, you know, thank you, Nessa, for joining us today. It's been brilliant. We've really enjoyed, you know, company and learning more about what you do. In terms of where people can reach you, how would one kind of contact you? Yeah, it's been good chatting. So thanks very much. I really appreciate the opportunity to come and hang out with you guys for a while. Please come and visit my website i guess it's superscienceskill.co.uk and that's grl i honestly created that name many years ago and now i can't get rid of it so that's that's what it is <laughs> amazing that was great yeah thank you fantastic yeah so i mean if people want to follow us as well they can over on twitter at can combos pod and yeah uh, have a great day yeah see you. fantastic thanks guys